All right. So tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at Daniel chapter nine. This is part 10 of our Wednesday study. And we are going to um, try to figure out at the end of this chapter what Daniel, what on earth he's talking about when he references 70 weeks. And uh, this is a passage of scripture that has been used quite often to set up different scenarios of end time uh, theology. So right at the very end of the chapter, we'll uh, give you a few different options on how to look at that passage. But the bulk of this particular chapter, ironically enough, is uh, more about Daniel's prayer in light of him reading the book of Jeremiah and the prediction of Jeremiah that the exile they are in will be finished after 70 years. So here's the way we have been looking at this book. The first section, the resistance of Daniel and his friends against um, the empires. And then the second section of the book is the apocalyptic visions. And tonight in chapter nine, there's a vision of Jeremiah the prophet that corresponds to some other um, things that Daniel has expected to happen uh, within his uh, own lifetime, but he will be rather disappointed that it doesn't, it's not fulfilled as literally as what um, Jeremiah predicts it in chapter 25. Well, so if you have a Bible, we'll be in Daniel 9, but we'll be looking at uh, Jeremiah chapter 25. And then I'm going to be reading a parallel passage out of the book of Baruch, which is one of the apocrypha books. And Baruch is a scribe that uh, lived during the time of Jeremiah and helped Jeremiah in the compilation of some of his prophecies. So here's the way the chapter unfolds there. It begins with a chronological setting. Uh, Daniel begins to interpret Jeremiah. Then there is a lengthy prayer, verses 3 through 19, for forgiveness and deliverance. And the reason this prayer is so substantial is because we are operating on what is called a Deuteronomy theology, that um, that everything that has happened to the nation of Israel is because they have violated the covenant that they had with God. Then there is another uh, visit from an angel, and this angelic inter intervention gives the interpretation of these 70 weeks that Daniel read back in Jeremiah. So that's the extent of the chapter, and uh, the bulk of it is this prayer, as I mentioned before. So as we get going, it's interesting, I've said this a couple times in this study, that the book of Daniel does not follow a strict chronology. It uh, moves around a little bit because it is built on different oral traditions that had been passed down for many years. Part of that is uh, the dating of some of these rulers. Um, it begins here with uh, chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by birth and Mede, who became king over the realm of the Chaldeans, which is another word for the Babylonians, in the first year of his reign. And if you have a study Bible, it will tell you that uh, this is out of sequence, um, that this particular uh, chapter is not only out of sequence chronologically, but it seems to be out of sequence 
contextually. So in chapter uh, eight and in chapter seven, you had visions. And these visions were of a sequence of empires that uh, would follow one after the other. Now, all of a sudden, you are taken back to uh, the context of Daniel um, in, in the time of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus. And what's interesting is uh, this is actually reversed. Um, uh, it is not like uh, Ahasuerus um, and Darius uh, our father and son, you'll see here historically what uh, historians have said is Ahasuerus is the son of Darius, not the opposite, not the father of Darius. So commentators have tried to reconcile this. And the way they tried to do that was to think about how uh, in chapter six, you had this same type of reference and it seems as though the writer in this particular chapter is trying to harmonize uh, chapter six and chapter nine. That's all technical stuff. It doesn't really change uh, the content or the meaning of the content for that matter. But what you'll find here in this particular chapter, uh, Daniel, how he has access to some of the scrolls of Jeremiah is interesting. He's familiar with the prophet and he's familiar with this prediction that the exile would last 70 years. Chapter nine introduces a concept uh, in Hebrew that's called pesher, which basically means interpretation. It's only really found in the book of Ecclesiastes as, a, as far as an interpretation of a thing in Hebrew. But this word pesher as an Aramaic word does occur in the Aramaic portion of Daniel a number of times. So what probably is happening is Daniel is thinking through the book of Jeremiah and is trying to apply it uh, to his own circumstances. And then we have said that since the book of Daniel is really compiled uh, closer to the second century when Antiochus Epiphanes is bringing persecution against the Jews, that the editor is the one that does a lot of pesher interpretation uh, of this, trying to help people have hope and perseverance through the troubles that they're going through. So anyways, there's a chronological setting, but it's built upon uh, Jeremiah. And you'll notice in verse two, it says, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord, to the prophet Jeremiah, must be fulfilled for the dev uh, devastation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So if you have um, your thumb there in Daniel, go back to Jeremiah chapter 25. So let's see what uh, Daniel is referring to here. So in uh, Jeremiah chapter 25, we're told at the beginning of the chapter a little bit of chronological context as well. This is the word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. So there, there's this context of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, and what he did to the people, destroying Jerusalem, 
bringing people uh, in exile uh, to Babylon. So obviously what would be the primary concern uh, of people that are displaced from their homeland is how long are we going to be here? Um, verse 8 in Jeremiah 25 uses some Deuteronomy type uh, theology as well. It says in verse eight, therefore, this is what the Lord of armies says, because you have not obeyed my words, I'm going to send for all the families of the north. This is the Lord's declaration and send for my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and I will bring them against this land, against its residents and against all these surrounding nations. Now I will completely destroy them and make them an example of horror and scorn and ruins forever. I will eliminate the sound of joy and gladness from them. So um, there is this connection again, because they have followed after other gods. Um, they violated the covenant. God's bringing this judgment upon the land. So God's wrath is in view here. But when you get down to Jeremiah chapter 25, and then you get to verse 11, there's this inkling of hope. Uh, it says this, this whole land will become a desolate ruin, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon, and here it comes, for 70 years. When the 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation. This is the Lord's declaration, the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, and I will make it a ruin forever. So that's what Daniel has in mind. He's thinking about how Jeremiah is predicting the downfall of Babylon after 70 years. Now, Jeremiah's legacy um, is of continued interest to the people. How much of that 70 years has passed by? Are we getting close to being able to go back to our homeland? So you'll notice a sequence of dates here on the screen. So when you begin to look at how all of this is put together, it's obvious that it's not 70 literal years because uh, between historians and theologians, the initial fall of Jerusalem occurred in 597 BCE. A massive deportation by Nebuchadnezzar took place in 587, 10 years later. And then Cyrus the Persian conquered Babylon around 539 BC. And Jewish groups began returning to the land between 460 and 440 BCE. So when you do the math, um, it's over a hundred years. It's not something that adds up to 70 historical years. So the, the thought of Daniel is um, how close are we to it? And God's going to bring this angel to provide a different interpretation than the way Daniel is interpreting this text. So Jeremiah chapter 25, also it says in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10, if you just go over just a couple of chapters, it says here um, in Jeremiah chapter 29. So this is the famous passage in Jeremiah that's on a lot of wall plaques and coffee mugs, okay? Um, you've seen you've seen this, for uh, for I know the plans I have for you. You're familiar with that. Mm -hmm. Okay. But let's begin in verse 10. That's where it tells us the dating. For this is what the Lord says when 70 years for Babylon are complete, 
I will attend to you and will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. For I know the plans I have for you. Here's that famous verse. This is the Lord's declaration, plans for your well-being, not your disaster, to give you a future and a hope. And you will call to me and come to pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart, and I will be found by you. This is the Lord's declaration, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you. This is the Lord's declaration. I will restore you to the place from which I deported you. Now, in that paragraph in Jeremiah, chapter 29, it's more than kind of a, um, a coffee mug type verse that's applied to anyone. It's a specific verse and promise that's made to a group of people that are in exile. But I want you to notice some, there's a theme that's introduced here, and this is where I think Daniel chapter 9 goes with this theme that's introduced. When it says, after he says, I know the plans I have for you, plans for your well-being, it says in verse 12, you will call to me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. The bulk of Daniel chapter 9 is a prayer. Do you see that? So the connection between Daniel hoping that the 70 years is literal and that it's close to being up is accompanied by his intercession prayer on behalf of his people, the nation of Israel. So Daniel is hoping that all of this is going to come about. But what we're going to find is that later when I show you that the angel is going to interpret this not as 70 years, but 70 times 7, 490 years. And scholars believe that that dating really is connected to the exile time corresponding to the uh, cycles, uh, sabbatical cycles, um, that's found in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And if you read uh, Leviticus, why don't I do that for you, just so you know what I'm talking about here. Uh, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 25, this idea of a sabbatical year for uh, the ground and giving rest to the land. Hold on a second. Leviticus chapter 25, I'll get there. Uh, beginning in verse 1, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, Speak to the Israelites and tell them, When you enter the land I'm giving you, the land will observe a Sabbath to the Lord. You may sow your field for six years, and you may prune your vineyard and gather its produce for six years. But there will be a Sabbath of rest for the land in the seventh year, a Sabbath to the Lord. You are not to sow your field or prune your vineyard. You are not to reap what grows by itself from your crop or harvest the grapes of your untended vines. It is to be, be a year of complete rest for the land. Whatever the land produces during the sabbatical year can be food for you, for yourself, your male and female servant, and the hired worker or alien who resides with you. All of its growth may serve as food for your livestock and the wild animals in your land. Now, 
every seventh year, they're not supposed to do agriculture. And that seems crazy, doesn't it? And it seemed crazy to the Jewish people, and they never actually kept the sabbatical year. They always violated it. So it is believed by theologians that the amount of time that they will ultimately uh, be in exile corresponds to how many times they violated the sabbatical year. But then it goes on in, um, in chapter 25 of Leviticus, verse 8, it says, you are to count seven sabbatical years, seven times seven years, so that the time period of the seven sabbatical years amounts to 49. Then you are to sound a trumpet loudly in the seventh month on the 10th day of the month. You will sound it throughout your land on the day of atonement, and you are to consecrate the 50th year and proclaim freedom in the land for all its inhabitants. That's called Jubilee, the year of Jubilee. It will be your Jubilee, which each of you is to return to his property and each to his own clan. The 50th year will be your Jubilee. You're not to sow, reap what grows by itself. So it gets very technical. What that basically means is the year of Jubilee is to help people get out of of debtor's prison, uh, basically. Um, it's to be the release of debts. That never happened. And so uh, people never had a fresh start. And because of that, when you take the 49, seven times seven, 49, and violate that 10 times, you come up with the number 490. And that's what the angel is going to tell Daniel uh, in chapter nine. So let me see if that makes sense to you or have I lost you there? Because it is kind of technical and complex. Questions, comments? Okay, so keep in mind 49, seven times seven is 49, and 10 cycles of violating the sabbatical year adds up to 490 years. And that I think is what, then comes back into Daniel chapter 9 when the angel gives an interpretation. Make sense? All right. Okay, so, so let's go back. Far, to, yeah, go ahead. How, how far <clears throat> um, back or whatever did Jeremiah live before Daniel? Well, Jeremiah is uh, predicting the coming of Babylon's invasion. So, okay. um, so he lives prior to Daniel, but I mean, it's not by hundreds and hundreds of years. It's, yeah, you know, it's right before it's um, again, that, that gets complex too, because there's different parts of Jeremiah that are, that have different dates in terms of mm -hmm. when they're it's written and stuff, but it, it it's not like it goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. It's okay. Jeremiah predicting that Babylon's on his way mm -hmm. um, to to take the people into exile. If you can just yeah. kind of keep it in that that frame of mind. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. All right. Let's go back to Daniel chapter nine. Now, in light of what I read out of Jeremiah, you will seek me and you will find me when you call on me with all your heart. So when you come back to J uh, Daniel chapter nine, that's exactly what Daniel does. He begins to pray. 
And it's a diaspora prayer, diaspora meaning for people that have been scattered from their homeland. And it's for forgiveness. He's praying for forgiveness and deliverance. And it's a lengthy prayer, verses 3 through 19. Uh, He really does uh, wax eloquent here in in intercessory prayer for his people. So Daniel uh, is is confessing on behalf of the entire nation, and 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 you'll notice that as you think about um, what he's praying about. So let me let me read this so we get the feel for it. It says in verse three, then I turned to the Lord God to seek an answer by prayer and supplication, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes, which is a typical ancient Near Eastern way of mourning. Uh, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, Ah, Lord, great and awesome God, keeping covenant and steadfast love with those who love you and keep your commandments, we have sinned and done wrong, acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. And obviously has Jeremiah at the front of his mind there. Righteousness is on your side, O Lord, but open shame as at this day falls on us, the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. Open shame, O Lord, falls on us, our kings, our officials, and our ancestors, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by following his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. So the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against you. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers by bringing upon us a calamity so great that what has been done against Jerusalem has never been done under the whole heaven. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, there's the key. He's using uh, Mosaic covenant theology, okay? Deuteronomy theology. Just as it was written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. We did not entreat the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and reflecting on his fidelity. So the Lord kept watch over this calamity until he brought it upon us. Indeed, the Lord our God is right in all that he has done, for we have disobeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made your name renowned even to this day, we have sinned and we have done wickedly. O Lord, in view of all your righteous acts, let your anger and wrath, we pray, turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because of our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors. Jerusalem and your people have become a disgrace among all our neighbors. Now, therefore, O our God, 
listen to the prayer of your servant to a supplication and for your own sake, Lord, let your face shine upon your desolated sanctuary. Incline your ear, O my God, and hear, open your eyes and look at our desolation in the city that bears your name. We do not present our supplication before you on the ground of our righteousness, but on the ground of your great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act and do not delay for your own sake. O my God, because your city and your people bear your name. That's quite a prayer, isn't it? Boy, it's quite extensive. It's quite intense. Um, it's it's quite um, open and vulnerable and transparent about what uh, the nation has done and how they deserve what uh, is has happened to them. What's interesting here is uh, if you were to read the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy is separated between blessings and curses. And the key to whether the nation would be blessed or cursed depends upon their uh, adherence to following the covenant that God made with Moses on Mount Sinai. Well, obviously, they followed after other gods. They intermarried with foreign women. And uh, all of this seems to be coming down upon them. And that's one of the reasons that they are in the situation that they're in. Now, what's fascinating here, even though we're reading this confession in the book of Daniel, this type of prayer is found in all of the post-exilic literature. In other words, a lot of the apocryphal books have the same type of prayers in them. And so it, it might be a type of prayer that's attributed to Daniel, but it's right in the heart of this uh, persecution that is uh, uh, coming upon them through Antiochus Epiphanes. So this prayer is parallel. I'm going to show this to you. I gave that in your notes. You'll see there's um, the book of Ezra, which is a post-exilic book, book of 1 Kings, uh, which is anticipating the exile, Baruch, which is um, an apocryphal book, and then the book of Daniel. If you were to take the time, now you'd have to have a Bible that has apocryphal book in it, but if you were to take the time, you would find eight things here that um, is found in all of these prayers. Uh, we have sinned. We have turned from the commandments. We have not listened to the prophets. The whole nation is guilty. Um, we have been driven into a foreign land. Uh, and then the intercession. Preserve Jerusalem. Forgive us. Turn from your anger. That type of thing. So I thought it might be interesting uh, for you to just hear this. Uh, I'm going to uh, just read a small component out of Baruch here. And listen to how it, again... Baruch was a scribe and a friend of the prophet of Jeremiah, uh, prophet Jeremiah, and um, and he uh, has this confession of sin. So kind of listen to the wording, and I think you'll see it's very similar to Daniel 9. Uh, Baruch 1.15 says, And you shall say, The Lord our God is in the right, but there is open shame on us today, on the people of Judah and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem and our kings, our rulers, our priests, our prophets, and our ancestors. 
because we have sinned before the Lord. We have disobeyed him and we have not heeded the voice of the Lord our God to walk in the statutes of the Lord that he set before us. From the time when the Lord brought our ancestors out of the land of Egypt until today, we have been disobedient to the Lord our God and so and we have been negligent in not heeding his voice. So to this day, <clears throat> there have clung to us calamities and the curse that the Lord declared through his servant Moses at the time when he brought our ancestors out of the land of Egypt to give us a land flowing with milk and honey. We did not listen to the voice of the Lord our God and all the words of the prophets whom he sent to us, but all of us followed the intent of our own wicked hearts by serving other gods and doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord our God. So the Lord carried out the threat. He spoke against us, against our judges who ruled Israel and against our kings and rulers and the people of Israel and Judah. Under the whole heaven, there has not been done the like of what has been done in Jerusalem in accordance with the threats that were written in the law of Moses. And it goes on. I mean, he just, then then there's the prayer, uh, then Baruch goes into a prayer of deliverance as well. We have sinned. Um, same thing, forgive us by your mercy. Um, the same thing that uh, Daniel 9 says. So what the point that I'm trying to make is, it seems as though Daniel chapter 9 while it seems as though Daniel is the one that's interceding, and this very well could be his prayer, it's very, very similar to the type of prayers that are post-exilic in Ezra and in Baruch and other places as well. So this, again, might be a way of looking back on what had happened to them and, and so forth, and it might be an impetus for the people in the second century BCE to do what is being attributed to Daniel, to pray and ask for God's forgiveness and intervention on behalf of their own situation. Does that make sense? You have some thoughts, questions? So I mentioned uh, fasting sackcloth and ashes. Um, this, again, is something that is found, especially during the years of the apocryphal writings. And here you have uh, two of them, four Ezra, that's not Ezra in the Bible of the Old Testament, that's a different book, and second Esdras. So <clears throat> these things they have a remarkably second century feel to it. Again, uh, this type of theology is something that's um, reflected in Judaism and then is handed down to three groups of people as you move into the New Testament from the intertestamental period. The, the community in Qumran. Qumran's the location where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. So uh, many of these type of prayers and these actions of fasting and sackcloth and ashes is very typical for that monastic community in Qumran. But you'll find that also when you read the New Testament by some of the actions of the Pharisees and even some of the actions of the early Christians too. Um, you know, you find that in the book of Acts as well. So um, all I'm trying to say is 
all of the, what's happening here in Daniel chapter 9 seems to take on a characteristic that's found a couple hundred years later. That's And, and it was very prominent part of the post-exilic community as it moves into the New Testament as well. So that, does that make sense? Uh, I, maybe I can explain it a different way if you if you ask a question. But any questions on that? Okay, so that's for your perusal there. If you have any interest in that, you can look up that parallel. So now let's get to back to Daniel chapter nine, and this is where we want to spend the rest of our evening. Um, Beginning in chapter 9, verse 20, there's an angel that uh, comes to Daniel. And the reason he comes is to interpret for him this Jeremiah prophecy. Now, what we don't know here, and I don't think even it, it says so right in the uh, text here, um, I don't know if this is a, another vision that Daniel has or with it, or whether this is a direct experience that uh, the angel appears to him in response to his prayer. But look at verse 20. It says, while I was speaking and was praying and confessing my sins, uh, my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God on behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen before in a vision, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. So he's saying, okay, I had a, a vision of Gabriel before. We don't know if this is happening in, in, uh, in the moment while he's praying uh, that Gabriel appears to him, but he gives allusion to the fact that he had a vision before when uh, he dreamt of Gabriel coming to him. Again, that's beside the point. But what's interesting here is what the um, what the angel is bringing to him. Take a look. It says here uh, in in Daniel chapter nine, beginning in verse twenty two. He came and said to me, Daniel, I have now come out to give you wisdom and understanding. At the beginning of your supplication, a word went out, and I have come to declare it for you, our greatly beloved. So consider the word and understand the vision. So now what's going to happen is the angel responds to the prayer, and the angel is the one that's going to give an interpretation to Daniel as to the 70 weeks. And here's what he says, verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, the peoples of Israel's transgression, and the punishment upon them, to finish that, to put an end to sin, the way they had been violating the covenant, and to atone for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand, from the time that the word went out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the time of an anointed prince, there shall be seven weeks, 
and for 62 weeks it will be built again with streets and moat, but in a troubled time after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing, and the troops of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall make sacrifice and offering cease, and in their place shall uh, be an abomination that desolates until the decree and uh, decreed end is poured out upon the desolator. Okay, now let me say a couple of comments before we try to sort this out. The first thing that I would say is, gee, thanks, Gabriel. That clear, <laughs> clears everything up. Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay. Um, this is a very complex paragraph. And it is a paragraph upon which um, end time prophecy uh, is, is used quite extensively uh, because there's a, you'll notice there's a 69 week and then another week. And I'm going to show you a chart here in a moment. And it'll make, make sense because you've seen these type of charts over and over and over again, because if you're familiar with what is, is called left behind um, theology, um, the idea of there's a coming great tribulation that's going to last seven years and there's going to be the Antichrist. And um, at one time in the 1970s, uh, Moody Bible Institute traveled the nation putting on prophecy conferences. And I think uh, my my old employment, uh, Erieside, hosted uh, a number of those conferences during the 70s and early 80s. This is all built upon this paragraph. And then portions of the New Testament are inserted into it. But before we try to outline that for a second, you can read here that even though what Gabriel's trying to say is the 70 years is really 70 weeks, okay? or weeks of years. And that's where the multiple 490 comes from. So then calculations are often done on, okay, if you calculate from a particular point um, and move it forward, you're coming close to the time of Christ about 490 years later. So now Jesus gets put into the mix of this as well. And is he the anointed one that's mentioned in this paragraph? So take a look here. Uh, this might be an easier way for me to explain that. It appears to be a description of the total amount of time from the beginning of the exile to the end of their political uh, situation. Now, the 70 weeks refers to several things that are going to take place at the end of it. An end of sin, atoning for iniquity, bringing in righteousness, sealing the prophet, and so forth. Then he says, um, 
what this actually is referring to is uh, 70 years is really 70 weeks and you multiply it, you get 490 years. So again, keep in mind, the book of Daniel never mentions a precise date nor a, an exact chronological sequence of this. But this is the promise that's given to Daniel, that it, it's going to come to an end, that even though it's not going to be 70 years like Jeremiah prophesied, it, it's going to come to an end. Well, different scholars have tried to figure out uh, what it's talking about here. Is it talking about uh, just sequential, sequentially um, a period of time, if you were to take it uh, in sequence and not kind of uh, fast forward it into the time of Christ, are there individuals that fulfill these prophecies? So um, what a lot of scholars will say is it seems to be like much of the book of Daniel, talking about the activities of Antiochus uh, Epiphanes that's in power. And there is a mention of him making a covenant in one of the apocryphal books, 1 Maccabees chapter 111. Um, and then what uh, the desolation of, uh, uh, abomination of desolation um, is something that can be described of when he, um, he erects a pagan altar to make a sacrifice of a pig to Zeus, which desecrates the Jewish altar. So the message seems to be talking about Antiochus Epiphany and his blasphemy. Now, what, what's really complex here is you can look at this paragraph and come up with many different ways of trying to interpret it. There are four that have really kind of come to the top. Uh, critical scholarship, another that's called historical messianic scholarship, symbolic messianic scholarship, and then one that you might be most familiar with if you listen to Moody Radio, and that's called dispensationalism, okay? Um, Moody, Dallas Seminary, a lot of evangelical um, uh, schools hold to what is called a dispensational uh, interpretation of the 70 weeks. So here's how I want to go about it. I want to ask these questions and I want to bring it back and I want to ask it of each of these four different uh, positions and see how it might work itself out. So here are the questions. Okay, what are the 70 weeks? What is the anointed holy place? Who's the anointed prince? What is actually happening at the end of 69 weeks? What is this covenant that's being talked about? What is the destruction of the city and sanctuary? Uh, what is the second half of that final week, the 70th week? And what is the ending point of the passage? And then finally, what is the main point? What is it actually trying to communicate? So before I get into these four different viewpoints, can I clarify anything that just so as we get into each of these viewpoints, you know, you, you have kind of clarity of thinking so far? Anything that you want to ask? Okay. All right, here goes nothing, okay? 
So um, take a look here. Critical scholarship um, is really trying to apply the book of Daniel within the framework of um, not only the exile, but moving into uh, the time that is called the intertestamental period, uh, the sequence of the different uh, empires, Babylon, Medo-Persia, uh, Greece, uh, are in view here. So if you ask these questions about, okay, if you just take it without kind of leapfrogging into a later time period, what could these things be referring to? Well, in, in this position, the 490 years, the 70 weeks is this time frame, 490 years. The anointed place is the temple, okay? Um, they've already lost the temple once. Um, they will, under Ezra and Nehemiah, when they come back into the land after the exile is over, they will rebuild uh, a much less elaborate temple than the one that Solomon built. But uh, what we're going to find is that temple is the anointed holy place. Who is the anointed prince? It might be some type of post-exilic leader that's in power at the time. And then at the end of the 69 weeks, uh, there's a high priest um, that's uh, conducting the sacrifices on behalf of the people, and he is murdered. His name is Onias in 171 BCE, and that might be um, what it's referring to at the end of the 69 weeks when the anointed one is cut off. There's question marks as to what the covenant is, though. Okay, what is the covenant that's in view in verse 27? So that's why there's a question mark there. Then what is the destruction of the city and sanctuary? In 167 BCE, Antiochus Epiphanes, this ruthless individual, desecrates the temple and he slaughters a pig and he um, offers it up to Zeus. In the last half of the 70th week, um, we're not sure what that's referring to under this particular viewpoint. What then is the ending point of the passage? Well, um, it, it's hoping that Greece does not um, uh, continue to rule for very much longer. Uh, it's hoped that they are defeated and that the people of Israel are set free from their dominance. And that is kind of the main point of the passage. The, the 70 weeks is leading up to the desecration of the temple. Again, these chronological calculations could be at the time when all of this is going on and Antiochus is threatening a, a variety of things here on the people of Israel. So that's how critical scholarship tends to just take this passage in sequence in light of everything that's come before in the book of Daniel. So let me see, do you have, do you have some questions there um, about that particular viewpoint. Now, in each viewpoint, let me say this, there's questions that cannot be answered about all the components that are in that paragraph.
So don't consider that unusual, but any questions there? Okay, let's go to the next one. Now, another viewpoint is what is called historical messianic. Now, this will get us into the New Testament era. So again, the 70 weeks is 490 years. That's the same. But the anointed holy place now in this viewpoint is not the temple. It is Christ. And the anointed prince is Jesus. At the end of the 69 weeks, this viewpoint talks about Jesus being born within that time frame and that the strong covenant is the new covenant. You remember Jesus at uh, the time he was observing Passover with his disciples. He uh, takes a piece of bread, he breaks it, and he holds up a cup and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. So then in this viewpoint, the destruction of the city and sanctuary is uh, when the Roman general, Titus, destroys the temple in 70 AD in response to the revolution under the Maccabeans and others that tried to rebel against Rome. The question mark of the second half of the week in that paragraph uh, is unknown. There's a question mark there. Under this viewpoint, I have no idea what that's referring to. The ending point of this particular passage then fast forwards all the way to 135 AD when the Roman Emperor Hadrian conquers Jerusalem. Um, so the temple is destroyed in 70 AD. Um, the Roman Empire's in power and so forth. And uh, there's another invasion of Jerusalem in 135. The main point of this viewpoint is Christ inaugurating the kingdom of God and the new covenant. So that's what's called historical messianic interpretation of this paragraph. Okay. Thoughts, questions there? Anyone? Only two more to go. Your questions, if you have some, I think we're going to come on the last one. The next one is called symbolic messianic interpretation. So the 70 weeks here in this interpretation is a symbolic interpretation, not a literal 490 years. And from the time Cyrus allowed the people to return back to Jerusalem uh, and to their homeland, Cyrus <clears throat> Uh, the the next one that is in power after Babylon is conquered, um, this period is said to be a symbolic period from Cyrus the Great to Jesus. The anointed place again is Jesus. The anointed prince is Jesus. Uh, what happens at the end of 69 weeks? Um, in this viewpoint, this is not when Jesus is born, but when Jesus is baptized. What is the strong covenant? Again, it's the new covenant that Jesus initiates. And the destruction of the city and the sanctuary is when the Roman general Titus destroys the temple in 70 AD. What is the second half of the 70th week? This viewpoint says that's the entire church age, which now has been for over 
a couple thousand years. The ending point of this passage is when Jesus returns and defeats another Antichrist that is going to be very similar uh, uh, in, in evil as Antiochus was to the people of that generation. Again, the main point is Christ is inaugurating his kingdom and the new covenant there. So a lot of symbolism in this one. Now, this is the one that is, is taught most by preachers like David Jeremiah, uh, Chuck Swindoll, uh, others that are on the Moody Station, uh, John MacArthur, that type of thing. And it's called dispensational. This paragraph has a future fulfillment. So it kind of splits between the 69 weeks and the 70th week. So let me show you this. And Esther, you're going to have to peek over here because I didn't put this in the notes. So <clears throat> the prophecy of Daniel, the 490 years, um, takes uh, up a, a large amount of this this schematic here. So there's all kinds of authors that outline this in various ways. So 69 weeks represents 483 years, okay? And it takes you from the time when there's a decree by Cyrus to rebuild Jerusalem and under Nehemiah rebuild the walls. That's when the 70 weeks start. Of course, you can go back and Rewind, this is what I said earlier in our study, that the amount of time that they're in exile, 490 years, is because of the violation of the Sabbath. So 490 years leads up to this 70-year captivity between 606 and 444 BC. 483 years takes you to not when Jesus is born or not when Jesus is baptized, uh, but when Jesus marches into Jerusalem, riding on the back of a colt, we call that Palm Sunday. And then that is when Christ is rejected and crucified. And that's when the anointed one is cut off. Now, what is the 70th week? Now, all of a sudden you time jump. The time of 69 weeks stops counting there. And we're in what's what uh, dispensational theologians call the great parenthesis, the, the era of the church where Israel is set aside and they are set aside because God is doing his work through both Jews and Gentiles in the church. Then, however long that is, which we don't know, it will end at the rapture of the church for Thessalonians chapter four, church is taken up. And that begins the 70th week of Daniel, which is called also in Jeremiah as a time of Jacob's trouble. In Matthew 24, it's called the time of tribulation, and it's divided in half. The first three and a half years, uh, the Antichrist is building trust among people. And then in the last uh, three and a half years, there's great tribulation that comes on the face of the earth, and Jesus will come again. And that will set up the millennial kingdom. Now, 
boy, it, it gets very, very complex. And why is it very complex? Because you're taking bits and pieces from a lot of different um, verses from a lot of different books of the Bible, and you're trying to make it fit into a schematic here. Um, and that is, that's, that's really tough to do. There's a lot of um, hermeneutical jumping jacks and gymnastics that take, takes place to make that work. But it's a cottage industry. All of your left behind books and, and books, um, I mean, I mentioned before David Jeremiah, I don't think he's written a book that's not about the end times. I might be wrong there, but the majority of his books are about the end times. So it's a very profitable industry to make it so complex that people need other people to tell them how it works out. So here's how this <laughs> works out, okay, in terms of answering these questions. Okay, 70 weeks is 490 years with a parenthesis between the 69th and 70th week, which is a gap for the church age. What is the holy place? The temple. Okay, it will be uh, it will be destroyed uh, um, by Titus in 70 AD. But the anointed prince is Jesus. And then at the end of the 69 weeks, the Jews who reject and crucify Jesus initiates the church age, which is the great parenthesis. The strong covenant, though, is a second individual that is an antichrist that's going to make an agreement with humanity and then will turn on people and it will be time of great tribulation on the earth. Okay, destruction of the city and sanctuary in 70 AD. And then in the last half of the final week, the 70th week, there's great tribulation and that becomes the setup for the return of Christ. The ending point is at the end of that 70th year, or at the end of seven-year tribulation, Jesus returns. And then the fate of the Jewish people is if they have not trusted Jesus during the time of the great tribulation, they will be forever lost. Okay. Whew. So, man, oh man, that's, that is really heady, complex stuff. Okay. So you are familiar with this because this is what is on Moody Radio. Okay. This is the perspective of prophecy and eschatology and on Moody Radio. So um if you did not if you did not uh go to a church um other than an evangelical type of church um you probably don't know of the other viewpoints. But if you went to some mainline denominations, you will find that there are some of those other viewpoints that I mentioned earlier. Um, I don't know how to comment on, I know uh, some people who have a Catholic background, I don't know um, exactly where they fall on some of these uh, issues. But what I, I do want to say, and I want to open it up and see if I can help clarify this, because it is very, very technical. Um, what I do want to say is, boy, you're putting a whole lot of weight on one little paragraph. Okay. 
you are you're building systems of theology on one paragraph and that's really dangerous to do is to put so much emphasis on this one paragraph out of one book but people do it all the time um so just be cautious that you know when you hear people especially especially street preachers i mean they talk a lot about this type of stuff as a way of scaring people and using fear as a way of controlling uh people uh just remember that's not that's just a particular outlook it's not the the cut and dry without question interpretation uh that um is clear there is no clarity in this paragraph as you can see so let me see if you have some thoughts any questions comments the main thing i can encourage you to do is be balanced I'm sure all of us have run into people that become eschatology obsessed. And what they do is they think they've got a system nailed down of what's going to happen in the future. And then they go looking for names and dates and movements in the newspaper and they try to apply it. Um, and that's where you get a lot of these people that, make predictions that Jesus is coming in 1977 and 1977 has come and gone. And then another prediction is in the eighties and then the nineties and people are still doing it. And I don't know why people are so fascinated um, and obsessed with this. I think it's fear primarily that motivates a lot of this, but um, people know how, know how to manipulate it and use it. Um, they use it not only to capture the attention of people, but they make a lot of money off it too. So just kind of keep that in mind and remember that, you know, paragraphs like this, while we can surmise a little bit on what it might be referring to, there's a lot of question marks. There really is. So any thoughts? I just wanted to say, I, I worked on this. And I actually had a full like course on it, and then working out to the exact time when Jesus arrived, and I looked at it as not scary, but more encouraging that it was mm -hmm. all planned out and and prophecy was fulfilled according to the exact timing when he was supposed to be here, and yeah. then they were looking for him to be born. Um, due to these prophecies so mm -hmm. it to me it was encouraging it wasn't scary um but yeah i i can see how you're kind of making it fit it seems like <laughs> like well the, let's go back to this chart for a second i mean when when you take different passages of scripture like this and you say oh this is that and you don't have clarity on on that at all or if you rip it out of context to make it fit into a schematic, then you're doing what is called eisegesis, not exegesis. And that is mm -hmm. you're you're reading into the text, uh, all this type of stuff. And there's a lot of that go that goes on with prophecy. 
I, I guess the best thing to remind ourselves of is that God has a kingdom. He'll inaugurate that kingdom when he wants to inaugurate that kingdom. And in the meantime, he calls on us not to be crystal ball readers. That's just my perspective, but to be faithful in loving other people and 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 serving uh, each other. And I think if we can concentrate on that and focus on that, then uh, a lot of these things that come and go and and when you see ebb and flows and cycles that often happen within uh, generations and stuff like that, um, then you don't you, then you don't try to make foolish predictions about uh, certain things because people have been trying to predict the second coming of Christ for hundreds of years, and um, you know it, it's just something that in the end. Um, we, we can't predict it. And um, it's just one of those things that we have to walk in faith and trust. Um, yeah, I'm not talking about the second coming. I was talking about the first oh, coming. Okay. Uh, the first coming was was the number of years mm -hmm. um, exactly uh, when, he, when he came on the first time. So that's what I was referring to. That, that's... That is correct. Once you, okay, this is the system I like. You can make it work out to to the coming of Christ. If this is referring to other things that are within the sequence of Daniel's writings, um, you know, then all of a sudden you go, oh, what if what if all these things was referring to what was happening? for an exilic people that's in hopes of getting out from under the yoke of Greece. Um, you can make that work too. So you just have to, I guess you have to hold it kind of loose a little bit because, you know, the Bible doesn't really say anything. It, it, it It's there and it only says something once you bring interpretation into it. But I was always thinking that they knew the exact timing that he was coming, that they went out in search of these children and tried to kill, you know, all mm -hmm. the children because they, they knew of the prophecy. Yeah. Well, that's the way it's told. Okay. That's the way it's told. <laughs> you know, again, that's our, that's our interpretation of it. Yeah. Okay. So, so you don't think that's true? I don't know. Mm. It, you know, I don't know whether or not it is something, okay, let's take the Magi during the birth account, okay? Um, they seek out the uh, the Christ child, and where is the one who's born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east. Um, did they do calculations? Um, you know, again, even the birth narrative in the Gospels is crunched together time-wise. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's strung out. They didn't, you know, they did not come from the, uh, uh, the Magi did not travel. How do I want to put this? I don't want to break people's bubbles. The, <laughs> the Christmas crash, crush, crushes or and brings together a timeline that brings the Magi and the shepherds and they all come on the holy night that Christ is born. That's not historical at all. 
Um, it the, the magi come later, and it, and most scholars think that they come at a time when Christ could probably is maybe three to four years old uh, before uh, they seek out this one who is supposed to be the king of the Jews. So then that's probably what motivates, and I would say it does, motivate Herod to kill those toddlers. And, and that's when Mary and Joseph flee to Egypt to escape that genocide. So, hmm. um, so again, we we tend we tend not we but every, you know in general people tend to take different traditions a lot of times and crunch it together and and try to make things fit. This could be absolutely right. I don't know. Um, this is my background in terms of my education, going to Moody and Dallas, you know. But I will say this. While a lot of time was spent on this and classes just like you, Kate, um, that made it fit together, we were never exposed to the other viewpoints. Hmm. Okay, so that's a school not doing justice to their students by not saying there are there are multiple viewpoints on this and hmm. and there are are ways of making other systems work, too. So when I look back on my education, they did a great job of indoctrinating the students to a particular viewpoint. But it's only over the course of my own reading and pondering and thinking that I go, oh, my gosh, there's so much more out there. But a lot of times schools pre prevent their students, one, for lack of the amount of time they'd have to be in school for 27 years did <laughs> to be exposed to everything. But on the other hand, it reinforces a system that keeps their donors happy. Boy, I'm being real skeptical here, aren't I? Hmm. <laughs> okay. That's why you'll never hear another viewpoint on Moody radio. You'll have one viewpoint on this topic um, because that's the one that is being presented as the truth. And then that's what people say. I'll donate to that. They're telling us the truth. Well, no, they're not telling you the full story. They're telling you enough to make sure that you keep donating to the cause. Okay. So we got to be careful is all I'm trying to say, is um, a lot of times this pursuit of truth is a pursuit of self-interest. And um, because in reality, like I've done for you, at least I tried to do for you tonight, is there's different ways of looking at this. And you can make any one of those systems work if you wrestle particular references uh, you know, if you wrestle them to the ground and make them fit. So um, just be careful. That's all I'm saying is this could be 100% correct. Or this one could be 100% uh, correct. Or this one could be 100% correct. Or this one could be 100% correct. In, in, in all reality, we don't know. 
my my where I'm at right now, I think this one makes the most sense in light of the flow of the book of Daniel and in light of the contextual evidence that we've been seeing in the book of Daniel. That's just the way I'm leaning right now is this critical scholarship uh, approach. But, hey, we're all brothers and sisters. If we have different viewpoints on it, that's fine. Uh, you know, we all love Jesus and we're all looking forward to the kingdom uh, of God. So, all right. Other thoughts? Oh, gosh, I've really gone over time. I, I kind of thought I knew I would on this. So let me just give you this and we'll wrap up for tonight. Okay. A couple, couple quick closing things to keep our mind on. <clears throat> so here's my theological assessment of Daniel chapter nine. The previous two chapters, chapter eight and chapter seven, were visions that involved politics and power. Who's in power? Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece. Then the chapter concerns a crisis of timing and the delayed expectation that is there because Daniel is praying with the expectation that the exile is almost over. And then the angel comes and says, no, 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 it's, it's, it's not going to happen within this time frame. Daniel's praying and confessing on behalf of the nation of Israel so that under Deuteronomy uh, theology, God will relent and, and in his mercy, allow his people uh, to go back to, the, to their own land. So maybe the belief of the writer or writers of Daniel believe that the time of the exile is almost over and what they're doing is trying to encourage those that are still uh, under a lot of pressure and persecution to hang on, uh, keep their hope high, continue to resist um, the power of the empire and what they're desiring to do to uh, uh, the Jewish people. So I think if we can take that kind of in in light of the rest of the book of Daniel and the resistance that Daniel is calling for on behalf of people that are trying to be faithful to, um, to their God, then I think one of the things that we can do is uh, continue to talk about uh, how this might help us in our hope uh, to continue to be um, resistant when we see things that um, are forcing us uh, to deny or um, our faith or that type of thing to continue to uh, persevere and so forth. So that's how I kind of take this chapter. So some closing thoughts that you have before we say call it a night. Okay, well, there always will be the next book out that will be published that says, I've got it all figured out. Here's how it all fits together. Okay, just be careful of that type of thing. This is very, very complex stuff, trying to take elements and components of the Bible and trying to make it uh, fit together um, as if it's a cookbook or something. All, all you gotta do is have all the right ingredients and then it, the Bible's not a cookbook. 
It's an anthology of people trying to figure out deep questions of faith. And then they preserve these writings. And then we have them so that we can try to approach the same questions as well. So, all right. <clears throat> okay, we'll call it a night then. Uh, and uh, thanks for your time and understanding and patience. And we'll see you next time. Good night. Good night. Hey, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you.